Welcome to the Payments Podium Podcast, hosted by the payments professor himself, Kevin Olson. This podcast discusses the past, present, and the possibilities of the payments industry. Here's the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Payments Podium with the Payments Professor, where, of course, we bring those from the industry, those experts in the area of payments, many different areas of payments, to be able to discuss what are the, let's go with, burning topics. I'm going with burning topics today because this is part two of a series, I'm going to have to call it, where we're discussing cannabis banking. And I have with me today, Angela Lucas. Angela Lucas works for Sterling Compliance. She's a former bank regulator. She's a seasoned consultant. She has got a level of knowledge and understanding of the cannabis banking industry that I'm going to have to say is far beyond any others that I've worked with. And I've worked with several in this industry. And this is part two of a series that we've already started. And in the first series, we heard a lot of things about where did we come from, about in the 30s, what was happening with cannabis and how it became a Schedule One drug in the 70s and the political parts that took place in there. Uh, what started happening in the 2000s, and especially 2010 to 14 era, when it came to state level issues and how the state started addressing this. How we got to where we had the coal memo and we had FinCEN and what happened as far as expectations in the industry. We even discussed in part one some of the things when it came to the business side of things and how these are true professionals in many and most cases that are operating these dispensaries. And we invited Angela to come back and we want to finish this conversation or at least definitely keep it going and start looking at now that we know what's established in the industry, I would ask you and welcome you definitely to the show, Angela, but what do we do now? What do we need to be able to do to educate bankers? Because you've said we've got to educate the staff. We've got to educate and know what questions to ask, what to be able to look for. So beyond the States Act, beyond the Safe Banking Act, beyond the Cole Memo, beyond FinCEN, or maybe not beyond, but incorporating them, what do financial institutions need to start doing? Hi. Okay. So, um, I think there, I think there's a lot to be understood in the industry about, um, what's going on from the federal regulators. And one of the main, uh, points that I'd like to make is that there's been no federal crackdown on financial institutions for offering banking services to cannabis related businesses. Um, the times that these these banks get into trouble or these credit unions get into trouble is either when they're banking these businesses and they don't know it or they're banking them and they haven't established a sound infrastructure to do so. So I'll kind of tackle each one of those um, quickly. Um, So if a financial institution is banking a cannabis related business and doesn't know it, that's a problem. Um, What we're seeing at um, in each state where it is legal in some way, shape, or form. There are state examination procedures, and the regulators are coming in and saying, listen, you need to understand our procedures, and whether you are going to bank this industry or not, you need to conduct a risk assessment of your customer base to determine whether you're banking any of these businesses, whether directly or indirectly today. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then they can be kind of hidden businesses too. Um, you know, is a flower shop really a flower shop? Um, you know, we see a lot of the CBD oil retailers out there and there's a lot of misinformation that CBD is legal in all 50 states that can't be further from the truth. Um, 
So, you know, you, they really have to understand their customers, ask the questions. I know there's a few software providers out there that um, maintain databases of those that are registered at the state level to do cannabis-related business um, and their indirect uh, related parties as well. Um, you can screen those against your customer base very easily. And so um, if a bank is banking them currently, they have to have a process in place to either exit those relationships if they don't want to bank them or administer them accordingly. And so um, the question becomes also, you know, we have a lot of institutions say we're not touching it. Well, whether they're not touching it, it's touching them. And so if they're going to say, if they're going to set a policy that we're not banking it, they better be very sure that they don't have any customers within their customer base um, that they're currently banking um, or and that they have procedures in place to identify them going forward. Um, we have others that are saying, yes, we're going into this and, and why would they do that? Uh, well, there's a lot of revenue to be had from it. Um, there's also being a market leader that is attractive to a lot of these financial institutions. Um, so there's reasons why they get into it, but they need to have a sound infrastructure in place. So really understanding the risk assessment process, understanding how to set their policies, and then how to set their due diligence is absolutely critical. Uh, Angela, I think you have just said words that have got listeners' ears perking up. I know compliance officers are probably getting chicken skin at the moment because you're saying all these key things. Examination procedures, risk assessments, due diligence. And of course, there's the sales side that heard that market leader and yes. being able you know, to make money from it. Well, on the state examination procedures, how do you go about finding out what those are? Or the state expectations for risk assessments and are they consistent among the different states? So the um, examination procedures, it varies on where they're housed state by state. But if you, in each of your states, if you Google, you know, the state examination procedures, they should be able to come up. It's, most times it's on the, um, it can either be found through the State Banking Association or on the state regulators website. They typically have them published there. Um, there are no federal procedures for this yet, but only at the state level. Okay. Um, uh-huh. Go ahead. So uh, the other part of that is, you know, it's getting the study guide before the test, essentially. So you can look at the examination procedures and understand what they're going to look at whenever they come in. And we've seen them be pretty, they're pretty consistent, um, even though they, even state by state, even though they're publishing their own procedures, they're really looking for the same thing. So what we talked about on the risk assessments and the due diligence. Um, the risk assessments themselves, um, there's no... Uh, sort of federally endorsed risk assessment out there. Um, you know, there's companies that have been doing their best to try to frame up this, frame up the risk assessment process. Um, we have a sample on our website as well that we came up with. What, what's that website? It is sterlingcompliancellc.com. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so um, it goes through different levels, you know, looking at the legalization, looking at the opportunities, looking at how you define your, your cannabis-related businesses, um, you know, the training and the audit and the technology, operationally, things that you have to consider um, in order to determine whether you even have the ability and whether you're suitable for offering these services. So, um, you know, when you go through the risk assessment process, it's designed to basically say, okay, if we're going to offer these services, you know, we need to staff up, we need to get more technology, we need to increase our board reporting. So it kind of walks you through the actionable items that you would need to manage this program effectively. 
on the other side, if you don't want to bank this industry, it can also tell you, okay, well, here's why we don't want to. Here's why we don't have the risk appetite for doing this. Um, so that's really what they're looking for. Have you made a case for what you're doing program-wise? Um, then you're, you're making my payments since tingle here. And, and I, I say that because the things you're saying, I can almost replace cannabis banking with third-party processing something that in the past 10, 20 years has been a huge topic in payments. Mm -hmm. Going in and people you know, asking them, do you have any third-party processes? And the answer is, no, we don't. We do further investigation, do risk assessments, and find out, actually, yes, you do. And then the next question comes up, do you have policies and procedures in place for them? And the answer usually is, no, we don't. And pointing out that you do need the exit from it and whether or not it's touching them. And something else you said earlier, too, is that directly or indirectly, so... Uh, I mean, wow, there's really a lot that, again, I know the compliance people out there are going to tell me more. So what do you do? Right. So, well, your risk assessment is going to drive your policy. Um, so you're going to have to, to put together that infrastructure part of it. Um, and then you do your due diligence. So your due diligence is going to be on your front end and ongoing. So how do you determine this direct or indirect on the front end? You're going to ask the questions. Every financial institution in the country is required to do certain levels of verification of identity for their customers, whether they're business or consumer entity or business entities or consumers. And so the other part of that is doing the due diligence and you, you ask certain questions, you know, what do you, what's the nature of your business? What do you do for a living? Where are you employed? Well, whenever the answer to one of those things points to possibly a higher risk industry, then we have enhanced due diligence we have to follow. So, you know, one of the questions that we always tell our clients to put on their questionnaire is, are you directly or indirectly involved in a marijuana related business? or are you employed by a marijuana-related business? If they say yes to that, there's a whole slew of questions that should be answered on the, or asked on the back end of that because we really have to understand what, how deeply involved they are in the, in the business. Is this a state legal entity? Um, what does that mean in terms of what we have established for our risk appetite and for our program? So there's a whole bunch of things that have to, have to happen in order to determine whether you can even open that account. Wow. So you're saying even asking at a, a personal checking level, are you employed by a marijuana related business? Yes, because here's the thing. If uh -huh. they are, how do they get their income? Are they paid in cash? If they're getting electronic payments, how are they getting electronic payments? You have to know as much about their employer at that point as if you were banking that employer. So, you know, in wow. my mind, a lot of what we talk about is, you know, we tell our clients, you know, are you determining whether you will bank employees of these cultivators and processors and dispensaries? And they say, oh, yeah, they're just the employees. Well, okay, but what do you know about where they work or who they work for? How do you know the related entities? It almost makes more sense with the level of due diligence that you have to do on the entity to determine whether you're going to bank their employee to bank the entity itself at that point. Um, so it, there, it's sort of a snowball. So once you start asking the questions, then it kind of snowballs into, well, what do we know about this? And, you know, we have related entities over here. And um, so there's a lot, a lot that comes into play. Well, I would ask too, you know, you say it's a snowball. It's also a slippery slope. So should I also be asking, do you work in firearms? Do you work in tobacco sales? Those other high risk industries, should we also be asking for those if we should be asking for this one? You know, there's a level of expectation that um, 
banks and credit unions do ask for um, or ask whether they're working for a higher risk industry. So they're not asking the customer, do you work for a higher risk industry? But there's a published list of higher risk uh, business entities or business structures that are within the um, interagency BSA exam manual. So things that are cash intensive, restaurants, car washes, um, payment processors, you know, all of those different things where we could have either trans cash-based or money transmission, money exchange, virtual currency exchange, any one of those things, we have to ask additional questions. So the banks are required to be trained in those areas to know the types of due diligence questions they need to ask. Oh, I think there was just a collective, oh, from being able to go, okay, thank <laughs> you for you know, clarifying that. Yes. And, but I like that if it's touching them, because what are the other ways it can be touching them that they may not realize? So if they are banking a security firm and that security firm also provides security for a cultivator, it's not their primary line of business, but it, they are cannabis based. Um, what if they are an inventory management company? Do they also go in and count the seeds and stems for a grow facility? If they do, it's not their primary line of business, but it's touching the bank. So there's a lot of little ancillary areas there where it can be touching the institution. It may not be the primary line of business, but there's some cannabis money coming through that account at some point. Um, is this that jargon of the tier one, tier two, tier three that we hear in the cannabis banking industry? It is, yes. So um, that the tiering system does not come from federal guidance. It actually comes from a white paper that was written by a gentleman named Steve Kemmerling. Um, and the way that it breaks it out is your tier ones are your growers, your processors, your dispensaries, those that are touching it from seed to sale somewhere. Um, your tier twos are those that are providing some sort of support services for the tier ones. Um, so it could be suppliers. It could be... Um, you know, some of the, the um, processes that help support the cultivator facility itself. Um, and then your tier three are those that they're not directly related to, you know, their primary line of business is not cannabis, but they're touching it in some way, shape or form. So it could be consultants, it could be attorneys, um, it could be the electric company, the security firm, those types. Now, theoretically, um, the level of monitoring and due diligence would go down based on tier, but that's not the way it works. So today, even if you're making a tier one or a tier three, your level of due diligence is the same. And there is this misconception out there that, oh, you know, we'll bank the tier threes, they're less risk. Well, that may or may not be true because the tier ones are required to be registered with the state. They have very specific rules, audits, and due diligence that they have to go through at the state level. And their entire process has to be transparent. They have to account to the very cent what they're doing, transacting each day. The tier threes, they, you know, it's not their primary line of business. So it might be harder to get that information. It might be harder to kind of pin them down. Um, so there was this big thought, oh, we'll just bank the hemp and the CBD people. Well, it's almost harder to bank the hemp and the CBD people today because the rules are, are more ambiguous where that's concerned. There's no state licensing level. And um, one thing that I wanted to mention in the previous uh, podcast, and we ran out of time, was the uh, the farm bill, the 2018 farm bill. Mm -hmm. um, 
this is something that caused a lot of confusion within the industry. Um, there was a 2014 farm bill that created the hemp pilot program. And so there are specific um, rules for growing hemp, legal hemp, um, which is also part of the same cannabis plant. It's just a different part of the plant, um, but it has little to no THC in it, so it doesn't create a high. Um, but growing it for research purposes. And so any um, entity that was approved under the hemp pilot program back in 2014 could legally grow hemp. Um, and if a bank was banking uh, one of these entities, then it would be legal at that point. They'd have to do the due diligence to make sure that they're complying with that bill or with the uh, hemp pilot program. But otherwise, it's a legal product at that point. Well, in 2018, uh, we had the farm bill passed where it removed hemp even though it's the same exact plant, um, from the Schedule One substances list. So it actually pulled out a piece of the plant and said, oh, but this isn't illegal. Um, and they said that states could create uh, their own legal hemp programs as long as the, the hemp uh, produced under those programs contain no more than 0.3% THC, so they have to watch the THC levels, so there's no high. Um, and then they have to create their own programs and submit them to the USDA for approval. Well, everybody thought, oh my gosh, I'm just going to go out and we're going to bank all the hemp farmers and we're going to bank all the hemp retailers and we're going to make all this money. And it was like, no, no, no. USDA came out earlier this year and said, no, that's not the case at all. We have not even implemented the provisions of the 2018 Farm Bill for the hemp side of things. So we're still operating under 2014 at this point. They are hoping to have those provisions implemented by year end uh, of this year so that they can uh, support the 2020 growing season. So we haven't even seen that yet. So there is, there was a lot of confusion over that for a while, um, but we're trying to kind of dispel that confusion. Um, but that's sort of something that, that has happened in, in recent months. Well, I know the burning question that just popped into everybody's mind is, how will I know when new guidance has come out? How will I know when they made the decision to go to 2018 and how do you get informed about that? I would imagine, so USDA will most likely come out with a press release. Um, the federal regulators will also likely speak to it. Um, we will absolutely stay on top of it. Um, we try to put out information every single month um, about. Where can people go to be able to get informed about this? Can we go to, say, your website? Do you have a mailing list? Is there a newsletter that you put out? Can, would somebody maybe just follow you on LinkedIn to be able to see what you're posting and putting out there? Because I know as the payments professor, I put videos out there on a regular basis to keep people informed of what's happening in the industry, but it can be a lot to keep up with. Are there other mailing lists or areas that people need to be signed up to, subscribing to, to be able to stay informed on when this becomes effective and what's happening in the industry? Yes. Okay. So easy things first. Um, uh, we do offer a monthly newsletter that covers all things compliance related as well as the cannabis related side of things. So um, we do offer a monthly newsletter where that's concerned and you can view um, the subscri subscription information and all of that on our website. Um, but then we also... And what's that website? It's sterlingcompliancellc.com. Thank you. 
And uh, we also work with the C-Bank network. Um, this is a network of banks and credit unions that's free to belong to. We do a ton of webinars uh, through them. Um, so that's another area where you can get more information. There's also, um, we post a lot of information to LinkedIn. Um, also, if you follow, uh, Steve Kemmerling is a great person to follow on LinkedIn because what they're doing is they follow what's going on in every single state and monitor um, the legal businesses in every single state and sort of what's going on. So he's a good one to follow on LinkedIn. And, and how do you spell his last name just so we can get it right? It's uh, K-E-M-M-E-R-L-I-N-G. Yes. And um, the other item, and I don't, I'm not certain of the exact website, but if you Google it, you'll be able to find it. It's called the Marijuana Moment. Um, and there's a guy, his name is Tom Angel that, that runs this. And so he brings in a lot of the legislative pieces, what the legislators are saying in Washington, what's being proposed, what's being passed, what's the status. Um, it's a free uh, newsletter that comes into your inbox every day. It's very, very helpful. Oh, awesome. And what about following you on LinkedIn? Would that help as work as well? Yes, you can follow me on LinkedIn. Um, we cover everything, like I said, from compliance to BSA to cannabis. So um, if you follow me, you'll see my posts. You also see what I like. And I like a lot of Steve's stuff a lot of the time. Um, but you'll be able to, yes, you can follow me on LinkedIn as well. Okay, that's, that is great stuff. Um, there's no doubt about it. Uh, again, time is starting to escape us, so I, I'd like to really move into, because we've been talking about a lot about the present, and I mean, I've got a lot of questions, like, you know, things that come to mind for me is, we, we talked in the first podcast that how do you get information like what's average transaction amount for, say, a dispensary or, or somebody who's distributing, and that that's information people want to know, and I know in the early days of some companies or industries, we just had to ask them and go by what they told us. Uh, other things I'd want to know are like, what are the biggest challenges for growers and distributors that they're facing? But I think more importantly is for a banking side of things is going to be the reporting and the auditing and risk assessments. So where do you really see this going as far as what the industry needs to do? What, what's going to happen next? Okay. Um, well, one of the things that I had, had mentioned and kind of glossed over a little bit was, um, you know, banks or f financial institutions could get into trouble for, for banking these businesses and not having the infrastructure to do so. Mm -hmm. um, so part of that is really understanding everything that you listed out there. You know, what are the transaction volumes? What are the sales volumes? Things like that. Um, there's a lot of really good resources out there, software providers um, that are dialed into the seed to sale networks um, so that they can get you that information. So over and above the BSA monitoring platforms that you have in place, they sort of sit on top of your core um, and they can monitor the marijuana related businesses and their activity through your institution. So I definitely think we're moving towards um, building an electronic infrastructure over what we already have in place to monitor this specific segment of the industry. So I think we're definitely going to see more of that. Um, so it means more money, obviously, inf invested into it, but you're also creating um, a lot of revenue from banking these businesses. Um, we, we absolutely need the legislation. Um, we need, but we need good legislation because we've seen what happens when bad legislation <laughs> comes out mm -hmm. um, and it creates a bad taste in everyone's mouth. And <laughs> no pun intended, I guess. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> but, uh, you know, we really want to make sure that we're advocating for a transparent and safe banking environment. And two, um, two associations that we kind of work with, uh, one is the Emerging Markets Coalition. Um, this is a relatively new endeavor that we've been working on. And this is really focusing on um, primary pillars of legislation, uh, regulatory issues, law enforcement, media, um, what happens with, you know, community and society issues. Like whenever we see legislation moved, it's not just touching the banking side, it's touching society in general. Um, but it's really about collaborating together. It's, it's a matter of having cannabis related businesses, regulators, legislators, um, consultants in the industry all come together and say, okay, what, do, how can we make this? a safe, efficient, and transparent business, um, a space that's been there. Um, and the woman's running it, she actually, and this is related to the payment side of things, um, created a similar association for the prepaid card industry. Um, so if you go back to the prepaid cards um, and the prepaid access industry, it was, oh, you know, they're the worst. They're, you know, ruining the banking system. They're laundering money. They're doing all these bad things. And, and one of the biggest takeaways from that was they weren't able to get their, their positive message out there. Like all the negative messages were out there. They weren't able to create the narrative. In this way, we can create the narrative and basically say, okay, we as financial institutions and those supporting the financial institutions can make this a safe thing to do. So that's one thing that, that we're working on. Um, the other association we work with is the National Cannabis Industry Association. It's largely made up of cannabis-related businesses, but what they're really doing um, is working with these cannabis businesses to make everything very transparent, make everybody sort of understand the industry. Um, and they also lobby in Washington as well um, to, to help with the legalization at the state level and hopefully move that to federal, but also on the banking side of things as well. So both of those, um, and I'm sure there's other associations out there, but these two we are primarily involved in, are really moving towards helping financial institutions understand the risk, understand what's going on in the industry, really understand the product. So, I mean, a lot of these bankers are looking at us saying, I never thought in a million years I'd be Googling, you know, marijuana at, at work, um, you know, and things like that. But it's really about sort of understanding the level of due diligence that has to be performed um, and how to frame that up in terms of risk and reward. That is a lot. And, and, and you know, I, I got to thank you for coming on. This has been incredible. Both parts of this conversation, I, I already can see a need for a third part. Uh, <laughs> I, I got to say, you know, you know, almost want to sum it up that we need to work together to help the industry grow. Yes, pun intended there. <laughs> and, like it. And, and it comes down to a lot of it is education and understanding. That's just a repetitive theme that we need to really level set the entire industry from it being the growers and distributors, because I know that's a challenge for them and how they can get banked, to the banking side of things too, so that they know how and what the expectations are to be able to meet those risk assessments, to be able to stay in compliance, to the legislative bodies that making sure that they understand both sides and what's happening to also the legal part of it and law enforcement parts of it, that knowing all the whole picture. I know one of the things you provided to me in our notes and our discussions to prepare for this was 
the pillars, there's the different pillars that I believe it's the Emerging Markets Coalition focuses on, mm -hmm. which are the legislative, the regulatory, the law enforcement, the media even, and getting the communities or society in general to understand what's really happening here. Angela, I thank you so much for your time. Are there any closing comments, anything that you'd like to say before we end the show today? Um, the only thing that I would say is, you know, you have to not only be diligent in, you know, in what you're doing as far as your customer base and your program, but also in the vendors that you deal with. You want to make sure that you're really getting a lot of education and well-rounded education in the industry. There's some that are more... Um, more knowledgeable than others, make sure you balance that out because, you know, no matter what, there's always going to be a spin on, you know, for or against. It's not an ethical dilemma at this point. It's about how the banks can safely provide the banking services, whether you're for or against legalization overall. Um, so it's really about, again, continuing that theme of education, but taking it outside of your actual program and really just making it a holistic function for your institution. All right. Thank you so much. Well, everybody, that concludes today's episodes of the or today's episode of the Payments Podium. Again, Angela, I thank you so much for coming on the show. If you do have any questions or comments, you can always email Kevin at paymentsprofessor.com and we'll definitely follow up to get those answered to you. You can look forward to future episodes that, well, we may be bringing Angela back for a follow-up on, you know, maybe a part three of what's it mean to have cannabis banking. So if you've got any questions you'd like asked in that, let me know. We've got other sessions coming up where we deal with risk, we deal with compliance, we deal with regulatory issues, and all of electronic banking. And if there's a specific topic that you would like to have the payments professor address and bring an expert to the podium, if you just let me know, again, Kevin at paymentsprofessor.com. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to the Payments Podium Podcast. Check back every Thursday for a conversation with the Payments Professor. This podcast is hosted and produced by Kevin Olson and edited by Sam Sue Smith. See you on Thursday.